So I told you last time at the end of the time that we would spend a little bit of uh, this first um, uh, part getting some review and then we'll pick up right back where we left off. We're just trying to get clarity about the gospel and we started to do that by asking a question, what is the gospel? So the summary paragraph I read to you, uh, here it is again. The gospel is the good news that God has chosen to glorify himself by redeeming sinners and reconciling them to himself. And that means that we don't have to die for the sins that we've committed against God. That's the good news, okay? We don't have to die for the sins that we've committed against God. Instead, we can be reconciled to God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ because of what God accomplished in Christ on the cross. God provided a full atonement for our sins, satisfying the demands of his justice and satisfying the demands of his redemptive decree as well to show mercy to us, okay? That's just kind of a statement to help us to get our arms around the, the nature of the gospel, that it's about God from start to finish, and it's about us not having to die for our sins. It's about us not having to die at God's hand, so to speak. That's the gospel, uh, because our danger is God. So with that in mind, we, uh, we're making the point that this, the gospel has to start and end with God, and I tried to show that by looking at some of the preaching in the book of Acts uh, from both Peter and Paul. We went through Acts 2, 3, 4, mentioned Acts 7, uh, Acts 14, Acts 17. Uh, we talked to Kaya Kagi. We let uh, Kaya Kagi come up and talk to us about the bit of the background of Acts 17, that passage in particular. It's very helpful for us to see that text that it's not an affirmation of pagan, pagan thinking and worship, but it's a confrontation of pagan thinking and worship and a repudiation of that kind of thinking. Acts 17 is a clear call to repentance and faith, uh, which is a, a gospel call uh, to repentance and faith. You can see some of that in Psalm 96 and other Psalms as well, that kind of thing. So we talked about whether it's a Jewish context with a shared um, common ground of, of God's word or whether it's a Gentile context with a common ground not being in the Bible, but being actually in God's created world, the created world uh, that we all stand in, we live and breathe in, in God's world. This good news to condemn sinners is going to start and end with God. Salvation is of God, it's through God, and it's ultimately for God. Um, Romans 11.36, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That includes the gospel. The gospel is from God, it's through God, and it's to God as well, okay? <clears throat> so, we talked about how God has provided us with his grace. Uh, he's created and sustained us. He's given us his law. Uh, he's blessed us with all kinds of good things, but we have sinned against God's grace, and we're in big, big trouble because of it. Um, God is going to, uh, he's, he's gracious to save us from his wrath. If we'll repent of our sins and put our trust in his son, Jesus Christ, if we'll rely on Christ and Christ alone uh, and his atoning work on the cross uh, to pay for our sins, that's the gospel. So the essence, we said, of uh, Christ's great commission is to make disciples. And that means that if we're going to be making disciples, that means we're going to be teaching people. We're going to be teaching people who know not the gospel or have a confused understanding of the gospel. So we need to teach, teach, teach. We proclaim to them and we teach them. We proclaim to them, we teach them. We said that we need to be preaching a gospel and proclaiming a gospel that's clear enough for the elect to recognize and for the non-elect to reject. So for those who respond, we're going to teach them to observe 
everything Jesus has commanded us in the New Testament and just get that part portion of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We're not just teaching people to know facts. We're teaching people to obey the words of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of discipleship, okay? So the gospel is about God. It's from God from start to fi- uh, about God from start to finish. It's the good news that we don't have to die. We can live. We can know God by being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and that's good news indeed. Okay. So anybody reckon, uh, remember the four basic, we might call them elements or outline points, without looking at your notes? <laughs> anybody remember? Look, you're gonna have to. You're not gonna have your notes with you when you're out in Walmart or whatever, right? So, four basic outline points. What are those four basic outline outline points for gospel proclamation? What are you keeping in mind? That little outline in your head. God and His holiness. God and His holiness. Awesome. Okay. Who wants to add to that? A second one. Man and His sinfulness. Man and His sinfulness. Good. Third. Christ and atonement. Christ and His atonement. Awesome. And then fourth. Accountability. Response good. Okay, man and his response. Good. Accountability, repentance. Yeah, good. Those are response issues. Good. Great job. So, as we were uh, going, as, as we go through that outline, and we unpack those things, what are two major points of emphasis that I told you I always try to emphasize, and every time I'm sharing the gospel, I'm trying to emphasize and kind of hit those themes over and over. Two major ones. What, did t- what do you, get? you guys remember that? Yeah. What, what are they? God is, God's holiness. Okay, that's not one of them, but that's a good thing to emphasize. Uh-huh. You add that as a third. Maybe first. Okay. Oh, I know. Yeah. But I looked at my notes, so I cheated. Oh, cheater. <laughs> Joe. As scripture is the uh, authority of Okay, right. good, yeah. The sole authority of scripture is, is the absolute standard. Uh, there is no other standard. It's the transcendent standard to which we all... Um, must pay attention. So yeah, good. Was it the exclusivity of Christ? The exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's right. Salvation in Him, in Him alone. So good. So the absolute standard of authority is God revealed in Scripture. That's the first thing I, I always try to emphasize. And the second thing, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ and Christ alone. And finally, we covered five vital points of truth that we need to teach when we proclaim the gospel. Anybody remember some of that? I, I know that that was a longer section, so five points, and then I, I cheated a little bit. And my fifth point, I unpacked another four points. Uh, that's, that's how I cheat in outlines. Um, so five, any, any five vital points of truth that we need to teach as clearly as, as we can, especially in this day and age. Anybody remember one of them? Yeah, Joe? Well, the fifth one was... Um, the promises, the real promises of... Okay. The true promises and rewards of the gospel. And I'll unpack that in just a second. But that's good. Yeah, thanks. Bruce? Yeah, I looked at my notes. No. Mm, let's, yeah. let's, try to, let's try to jog the memory. I'll, I'll jog your memory by saying this. It's about the gospel. <laughs> Can't clue you right in. Um, repentance and faith. Okay, good. Yeah. So the, uh, the uh, where is it? The true demands of repentance and faith is how I put it. True demands of repentance and faith, Luke 9.23. Anyone who would deny himself, or would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that mean? How do we understand that? We understand, too, that the true demands of repentance and faith are not works. Those aren't works of man. <clears throat> Those are evidences of divine grace. 
spiritual regeneration. They're not human works. And for that, we point to John 3, 1 through 8, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and Titus 3, 4, and 7, 4 through 7. So good. We're, we're kind of working backwards. That was number, number five, true promises and rewards of the gospel. Number four is true demands of repentance and faith. I guess you guys want to think backwards tonight. That's fine. Go ahead. What's number three? All right. Any of the other three points? An explanation of righteousness. Good. Good. That's actually the first one. Uh, I mentioned the, an explanation of true righteousness. Uh, because people tend to look around at... Going back. <laughs> People tend to look around at one another when they want to define what, what the standard of right and wrong and good and bad is. Uh, I'm, I'm good compared to this axe murderer over here. I'm not like that guy. And so they think they're okay. So if we say, let's just sweep away all human standard and see what is the true standard of righteousness? What does true righteousness look like? And we talked about doing that through <clears throat> an exposition of God's law. Uh, to, deter to determine and demonstrate our, our want of righteousness. So we talked about going through Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and then actually connecting that. It's very important to connect that with Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus went right down to the heart, right down to the thoughts and motives and intentions of the heart in, in Matthew chapter 5. He, he expounded the true meaning of the Ten Commandments in that section. Okay? Good. We got three of the five what else do we need to, vital truths? Judgment, yes, good. So the fact of coming judgment, that there is, there is a reckoning coming uh, because of our want of righteousness, because we are sinful and we do, are not righteous. Jesus said at the end of Matthew 5, be ye therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and we do not measure up. And so there is judgment coming because of that. There's a sentence on our heads of divine wrath, and that's eternity in hell. So we went through, talked about Matthew 7, uh, Matthew 25, 46, a very important text, using the word eternal to talk about uh, life eternal and eternal judgment. It's the same eternity there. And then Revelation 20 and 21, 8, um, pulling those two texts together. Um, so that's the third one. The one just before that, so we talked about explanation of true righteousness, fact of coming judgment, demands of repentance and faith, true promises and rewards of the gospel. The one in there after righteousness is the fact of universal condemnation. That is to say there's no one righteous, not even one. Okay? So um, because of our, our want of righteousness, everyone is dead in trespasses and sins. And uh, that's Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You can also go to uh, Romans chapter 3. Uh, that whole section there in the beginning is talking about how there's nobody righteous. We're all condemned under uh, God's standard of righteousness. Okay? Is the, the smell of cooking yes. meat killing anybody else besides me? I mean, I've eaten today, and that is, I'm just one, I'm turning to a carnivore right here. I want to run in there. And do you want some crackers? <laughs> crackers are not going to do it. <laughs> not even close. <clears throat> so let's, let's go back then to that, that fifth point, and just the true promises and rewards of the gospel. This is uh, oftentimes, I think, in the gospel, in gospel presentations, we want to we want to lead out with like good things that God will give you if you just become a Christian. Um, and, and I understand the desire to do that. We want to show God to be 
I don't know, approachable. Um, you know, we, we talk about the wrath of God, but we also want people to understand he's merciful and gracious, and he'll save anybody who draws near to him in repentance and faith. But let's just make sure that we, if we're going to talk about that, um, God's goodness and what he's offering the gospel, let's, let's make it accurate. God doesn't promise us a happy, easy life. He doesn't promise us um, bliss from here on out. He promises us a lot of trouble, actually. Um, but along with the rewards and the promises of the gospel, the first thing I mentioned is that we offer people through the gospel the forgiveness of sins. And then the gift of righteousness by imputation in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So if you are after having your sins forgiven before a holy God, a clear conscience with all that junk wiped away. Um, if you are, if you are, want to be free from the power of sin in your life and sin's penalty, well, the gospel's for you. Okay. If you are, if you are longing, hungering, and thirsting, like Jesus said, for righteousness, well, the gospel's for you. The next uh, thing we want to uh, tell people about the true promises and rewards of the gospel is that there is a declaration of God that you will be justified by faith. So on the basis of faith, God will declare you righteous before him. That's um, courtroom, law court imagery, where we're standing before the holy judge who has the power to not only prosecute, but then also declare us guilty or righteous and then sentence us based on guilt or pardon us based on righteousness. That's a powerful thing to know that before God, we can be declared righteous. Next thing, promise and reward of the gospel is the participation in the divine life. Participation um, in knowing God, the joy of knowing God, John 17, 17. Um, or John, is that John 17, 3? This is eternal life. They may know you, the, true, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I think that's 17, 3. Yeah, I wrote her down wrong. Um, and then the, the last promise and reward of the gospel that we like to de-emphasize because we don't want to turn anybody away after all. Um, the privilege of earthly suffering. The privilege of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5. Remember how Matthew 5 starts out? It starts out with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. You know what the last one is? Blessed are those, blessed are you when you were persecuted for the sake of righteousness. <clears throat> Let's include that one as a promise of the gospel, that you will be persecuted, and that's a blessing on you. For so they treated the prophets who were before you, okay? So, persecution for the sake of Christ, all right? So we went, we went through all that, um, read a lot of verses. I'm not going to unpack all those. And we acknowledged at the end of last time, and that seems like a lot to teach and explain when we're bringing the gospel to an unbeliever, doesn't it? It's actually, we need to understand that this is actually very, very basic. What, what we've gone through is extremely basic, even though it is very profound and searching and reaching, okay? It's basic. And if we're humble, which we need to be, uh, we are, if we're humble here in this context, of American evangelicalism that many of us have grown up in, we need to recognize that some of the crosshairs of the warning passages in Scripture are directly on our heads and our hearts and our churches. That we need to repent um, and heed these warnings and rebukes of Scripture. 
And particularly, I want to turn, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, um, listen to this from Hebrews 5, 11 and following. And the writer has been discussing Melchizedek as a type of Christ. And you think, whoa, that's heavy stuff, man. Um, he stops to make this comment after discussing Melchizedek and trying to encourage the church through that about Christ. About this, Hebrews 5.11, about this, about Melchizedek and all the things I've been talking about, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, i.e. the gospel and everything we're talking about here tonight and last week, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We can stop there. Now, if you're like me, that stings a little bit because we know it's true of us. We know that this is where our evangelical churches need to say, whoa, we have been weak. The kind of preaching that is coming out of our pulpits is just creating a weak church that is very comfortable with not even milk. I mean, milk would be great if that's coming out of many of our pulpits. What we're actually getting is junk food and candy and moral lessons and coaching about how to have happier lives. This is, we, we could, we do well to start with milk, but let's not just stick with milk. Let's understand that the milk are the essence of the gospel. And we need to move even further beyond it. We're, you understand, we're all in the crosshairs here, and we need to take heed. Um, but God is so gracious, because whenever he rebukes, and whenever we receive his rebuke, his kind correction, he always follows by granting us with his grace and his strength. When we receive his kind rebukes, it always leads us to greater blessing. For that, I'd like you just to turn a few pages over in Hebrews to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 5. Um, well, let me go back to verse 3. Consider him who endured uh, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, there's another mention of training, our senses trained, uh, being trained by righteousness, okay? Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed, okay? And we could go on, but stopping there, we just need to, we really need to heed some of these passages for our own, just, we can only work on ourselves, right? So let's heed it for our own church and, and take these good and encouraging words about the discipline of the Lord and our need to grow. Let's take these to heart because we really do need to learn um, if we're going to be a true church, if we're going to be a true church that upholds the true gospel, we need to proclaim the truth about the gospel. That means we need to make sure we're getting it right, being clear, okay? So we talked about <clears throat> organizing our gospel proclamation and in our instruction to unbelievers <clears throat> under some <clears throat> excuse me, easy headings that we'll remember. God in his holiness, man in his sinfulness, Christ in his atonement, man in his accountability. Or even simpler, we just talked about four things, four words, God, man, Christ, and response, right? So just make sure in your gospel presentations, you start with God the creator, the lawgiver, the judge. Talk about the perfect sufficiency of Christ's atoning work and with our accountability before God. Start with God, end with God. Be clear about making distinctions all the way through, okay? So that, all that, <clears throat> just a reminder of what we talked about last week. Just a, That's a reminder of our first point. So let's briefly mention a second point <clears throat> and ask this question. What is the theology that's involved in the gospel? What points of doctrine are involved in the gospel? I want to highlight some of those. And I'm, tonight we're just going to... We're just going to mention these. Um, I'll make a, maybe a couple comments, but we're going to mention, we're going to save, we want to save time to get into our third point. This is the substance uh, of tonight's lesson, but we'll come back and, and, and really walk through some of these um, gospel doctrines, the theology. But before that, let's just name some doctrines that, involve, that are involved in an accurate proclamation of the gospel. Who'd like to name the first one? Significant doctrines that are involved in gospel proclamation. Repentance. Doctrine of repentance. Good. What is repentance, actually? What's the teaching of the Bible on repentance? Good. Doctrine of repentance. What else? Sin. <clears throat> Doctrine of sin. Yeah, clear understanding of what sin is. Good. That's very important. That's called hamartiology. Good. I've got some water here. I'm not. Sorry. Right. Thank you. You can have that one. <laughs> doctrine of the, I mean, doctrine of uh, Christ's atonement. Okay, doctrine of the atonement. Very important <clears throat> is the atonement. Uh, just an example theory of the atonement is a ransom theory of the atonement, or is it penal substitution? <laughs> it's penal substitution. <laughs> yes. Vicarious penal substitution. Okay, so doctrine of atonement, very important. And that doctrine, by the way, is under immense attack right now in theological, like, ivory tower academic circles. And whatever's happening up there in the stratosphere filters down through the churches. Believe me, it really does. Joe, what else? Hell. Doctrine of hell. Doctrine of eternal punishment. Good. Doctrine of, of the, the consequences for sin. Which... 
has to do with what doctrine in God? What attribute of God? Holiness. His holiness. His holiness. It also has to do with his love, believe it or not. What else? Doctrine of what? Hi, Emily. <laughs> Heard you guys had an interesting time with Jehovah's Witnesses yesterday. So, kids, what points of give theology you, did you use? Let me give you a little piece of advice. Do, do what Emily does to your parents and invite Jehovah's Witnesses over on Saturday morning. <laughs> Mr. Moss, Mr. Moss. I'm actually glad she did. <laughs> she told me last week she did it. I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Max, what points of theology did you use when you were talking to the Jehovah's Witnesses? How do you explain Paul? What does it mean? You know, we talked about Nicodemus and we talked about Paul. It was, it was very difficult to talk to people who have created a religion around their own desires of what they want God to be. And they sit in front of you with an iPad that has their scripture and your scripture and their scripture written the way they want it to, to, to say and their Greek words that they're ready to defend. It was really very interesting. So any scripture you brought up had response on their iPad. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's how they train. You know, they really don't know much off the script. Yeah, but that's how they train. Bibles. Really? Hmm. They train hard. Hmm? They train hard. They do. They train hard. This is a guy who's been in their camp before. Kind of listened in. Good. Uh, what other doctrines? You guys want to give up on this game? Okay. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Deity of Christ. Okay. Deity of Christ. Let's just talk about the de Christology or the nature of God. We could even expand that to the nature of God himself. Yeah, Scott. Doctrine of grace. Okay. Doctrine of saving grace and soteriology. Good. Good. All right, one more. Doctrine of faith. Doctrine of faith. So we're talking about doctrine of repentance, doctrine of faith. What does a response to God look like and how does it happen? That's good. Very good. Okay, so <clears throat> here's some doctrines. This is meant by no means a, an exhaustive list, but here's some doctrines at stake in the gospel. And I'm just going to mention each one briefly. We'll unpack them a little bit more uh, next time. So we're talking about, first of all, the doctrine of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Paul tells the Thessalonians, you, um, it was remarkable to see how the word had power in your life to see you turn from dead idols to the worship and serve the living God. So there is something about a making a distinction between the idols that people are offered to worship and the true and living God. And in our culture, so back in the Thessalonian culture in Thessalonica, very clear distinction between God and Christ and then the idolatry around them, even though it didn't take long for them to assimilate some portions of God and start to offer what's back in the early, in the, you can see in 1 John, kind of an incipient Gnosticism. So a Gnostic view of Christ uh, started to be offered to the people and it became confusing very, very quickly. It's in our country, we think, oh, we're a Christian nation, and people really just have generally have a sense of Christ and God and salvation. No, 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 they do not. And that's what definitely, as you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, you need to find your terms. Okay, stop, time out, you just mentioned salvation. What do you mean by that? Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, you just talked about Christ. Who is Christ? Let's define him biblically, and let, let me explain what the Bible actually says. 
you have to define terms on not just with Jehovah's Witnesses, but even with today's evangelicals. They think they understand all these terms because they've grown up in churches. They often do not. They often don't. They fill those terms with their own meaning. So we need to stop and make distinctions about the true nature of God. Trying God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to talk about the doctrine of man. Created in God's image, fallen in sin, guilty of sin, born in sin, dead in trespasses in sin. We need to talk about all that. The doctrine of divine justice and divine wrath. We need to talk about the doctrine of Christ, his full divinity, his full humanity, the fact that he's son of God and son of man. We need to talk about the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement and how divine wrath is propitiated or satisfied. Um, we need to talk about the doctrine of uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We need to talk about the doctrine of regeneration, imputation, justification by faith. All those are related in the transaction of what's going on in, in salvation. We need to talk about the doctrines of sanctification and perseverance and how God causes the saints to actually persevere to the end. And you need to talk about sanctification. It's that that, that is the demonstration of a truly saved life that you're made more and more holy more and more like christ and then talk about the doctrine of the second coming of christ both for judgment and for salvation okay so those are just a, a just a snapshot at a few doctrines and as you can tell the the proclamation of the gospel is not a matter of boiling all this down to a few points and a prayer god is holy and his gospel is holy and it's it takes time to explain. It, it takes effort. It takes clarity. Uh, so gospel proclamation, as we said last week, is not a, a cookies on the bottom shelf kind of thing. And contrary to many pop, popular gospels or pop gospels, the responsibility to proclaim this gospel is serious business. And it has in, profound doctrines in dealing with the very nature of God, His holiness, His eternal implications. And Hebrews calls that milk. We need to understand the milk and understand pure milk from sour milk or powdered milk, you know, which I grew up on. I truly did grow up on powdered milk, and I, I liked it until I tasted real milk, and I thought, where have I been? This is awesome. This is what comes from a cow? Okay. Um, so we, we dare not treat the gospel with any kind of contempt by turning it into a sales pitch which really minimizes gospel truths to the lowest common denominator just so we can get a response, okay? A positive response. Now, to illustrate how that has been done, about how the gospel has been turned into a sales pitch, um, minimizing the truths to a lowest common denominator kind of a thing. And, and we also want to paint a contrast with what we've been discussing about the true gospel. Let's, let's look at a current version of what I would call a minimalistic gospel presentation. So a third point for tonight's outline, I've talked about what is the gospel, what is the theology of the gospel. Here's what we'll call a third point, what isn't the gospel? What isn't the gospel? And this one, this one comes close, but it's not on its own the gospel. This is a gospel presentation that many, many Christians have learned over the last, I'd say, six decades in our country. It's one that's still being, what is the deal with that? I don't know. That, uh, is that the microphone? It's like a lyric test. 
Mark Winterchuk. Mark's checking. He's not doing very good. Hey, let's all take a break and go in there and start pushing buttons. Okay, so so here's a here's a gospel presentation, one that's that's still being advocated and taught to Christians, and particularly to our young people, uh, particularly to our college students. This is a gospel that many today have embraced as the true gospel. I pulled this presentation from a, a popular evangelical website just recently. <coughs> the article is entitled "How to Know God Personally." And I'm going to read a section, and then I'm going to stop to get your comments about its accuracy, okay? This is by nature, you need to understand, this is by nature a critique. What we're doing tonight may sound unkind or unfriendly, but it's not. This is actually healthy for us to paint contrasts, okay? We need to understand and learn by way of contrast. I want you to understand, though, while we're going to do a critique, that whatever we weaknesses we find here, I want to emphasize this, that... I appreciate people who are trying to get the gospel out to people. Yeah. I really do, because I find a lot of people who want to be armchair quarterbacks and sit there and shoot down every gospel kind of method or approach while they themselves sit in their armchairs and do nothing. So, okay, so correct or, or rebuke however you want to, but you better get up and go out there and take a gospel to somebody and not just, not just be the critic, okay? We're... Uh, Soon going to introduce a certain method for starting a gospel co conversation with people. You just need to know that this gospel presentation, it's not perfect. It's a method. It's an approach. And it's one that I'll commend to you as a very helpful guide in getting a conversation started and having some things in your mind to, to, to help you remember and give you some confidence. Um, but that method I'm going to present to you has been criticized as well. It's too formulaic, uh, too... Uh, running people through a cookie cutter approach and all that other stuff and I understand the critique I've made the critique myself but again there are way too many armchair quarterbacks that are willing to criticize over here from the sidelines while other people are going out there to do the work of sharing the gospel so let's be accurate and at the same time get out there and do it and not just be not just be um, hypocritical critics okay at the same just the same we want to make sure that those who are being faithful by jumping into the game proclaiming the gospel, that they're not undermining their own efforts by proclaiming error <laughs> or, or a half gospel. Because a sub-Christian gospel, it's almost worse than no, Christian, no, no gospel at all. Because it really inoculates people against the true gospel. Because once they buy that message, and once they sign that thing and stick it in their back pocket, they feel like they're good. And then you try to say anything against that, that assurance that they, they think they have, and you are rocking their world, okay? So it's really tough. So here we go, quoting from the article. Here's what it starts, how it starts. It says, what does it take to begin a relationship with God? Devote yourself to unselfish religious deeds. Become a better person so God will accept you. You may be surprised that none of those things will work. But God has made it very clear in the Bible how we can know him. Okay, so, so far, okay. Mm -hmm. um, I would just take exception with the very first question. What does it take to begin a relationship with God? Understand in what we're saying here is we all have a relationship with God. It's just, are you related to him as an enemy or as a friend? Okay, so we all have a relationship with God. 
But we understand what they're saying. We understand. They're talking about beginning a reconciled relationship with God. So let's, no amount of good works is going to undo the debt we owe for our sins. That's true. No amount of good works is going to satisfy the wrath of God, reconcile us to a holy God. So good so far. Here's what, here's what we'll continue. The following principles will help explain or will explain how you can personally begin a relationship with God right now through Jesus Christ. Principle number one. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? Then the article provides a couple of verses on God's love and his wonderful plan. God's love. Here's the verse. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the verse on God's love. Here's the verse on God's plan. This is Christ speaking. They put that in brackets. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. That, and then in brackets they put that it might be full and meaningful. So they're providing interpretation for you to understand what having life abundantly is. It's a full and meaningful life. Okay? Now we'll stop for a moment, identify some biblical, I'd say, weakness inherent in this, just this first principle and the verses. What is the starting point in this gospel presentation? Man. Man. Exactly. Man's at the center, right? Um, what did it say? It said, God loves you and offers you a wonderful plan for your life. It's all about you. That's not the gospel. Okay, what else? Um, let's ask this. What terms um, in this, what I've just, the principle and then the verses, what terms cry out for definition, scream for definition? especially relating to the verses that are quoted. Can we go back to the very first part of the word relationship? Yeah. Because that by itself implies not a lordship or a requirement for submission. Um, so that, that right immediately seems to kind of water down the idea of what's really coming. If yeah. God wants a relationship with you, you know, I mean, but you got to respond. It means there's like all these people that he doesn't have a relationship with. And I guess that's just okay, you know. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, l listen, if it, it is about having a reconciled relationship to God. Um, so, a proper relationship. Because like you said, we do all have a relationship. But this, like to a, somebody that doesn't know any better, they would definitely just be thinking... God has no relationship with okay. all these other people. Keep that in mind. To someone who doesn't know any better, this is a gospel presentation. And it's an assumption, a, a, a starting assumption that they don't know any better. So there is, there is a lot left to their interpretation. And when we're talking about relationship, um, I'll make another comment that kind of, we can say, that covers the rest of this gospel presentation. It's very relationship-oriented. It's true there's a relationship with God, either of enemy or friend to us, but there is something more that's going on here, right? And notice that this is how you can begin a relationship with God. So not only are you the focus of it, you are the, you're the one who's initiating it. Like every pagan religion. Like every pagan religion. Yeah. Also, it kind of mimics like our idea of a relationship like if you're talking to a non-believer chances are they've had some kind of relationship that's not godly uh -huh. that does have you know they live with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or whatever and if you immediately liken the relationship with christ to that then it's 
You're already tainting it. Okay, good. So again, people are coming through in a filter of their own experience, their own background, and they've got ungodly relationships that have filled their lives. And so when we're talking about relationship without any true distinctions being made, God is my girlfriend. God is my boyfriend. That's the way they tend to think about it. Let's go to those verses. One was John uh, 3.16. God so loved the world, gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I came that they might have life and have, might have it abundantly. What, what terms cry out there for definition? Yeah. Husband and wife. Let's. I was going to say, I mean, if you're going to use John 3.16, what's the context of, of that conversation? Okay, good. So there's no context there in, in uh, John 3.16. Good. So, um, but I asked um, also about the terms. What, Alyssa? Um, the life abundantly, and then also the, the statement about, so you can start a relationship with God. What was the second half of that statement that he God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. So wonderful plan for your life, and they're supporting that with abundant life. But our idea of a wonderful, my idea of a wonderful plan for my life and okay. an abundant plan for my life is going to look more like Joel Olstein if I'm a non-believer okay. than, I mean, even honestly, as a believer, I'd like it to be easy, but it's not going to be. Okay, good. You know, so I'm going to think it's going to be easy. Everything's going to go my way. I'm going to not have problems. I'm not going to have trials. I'm not going to have sickness or good. struggles. Or, and that verse even seems to support that because my definition of abundant it's going to be very different from the biblical. Well, especially when they put a bracket there and help you interpret what it means by abundant by saying um, it's, it's what to say, life, uh, it might be full and meaningful. Yeah, totally different. Is that really what God's talking about? It's about things and it's meaningful in ways, but yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, yes. Just life in general, that word. Yeah. Because a lot of people think of life as now instead of life in the eternal aspect. Yeah, life, um, yeah, life in the sense of my, my material needs, everything that fulfills me now and all my senses and keeps my senses firing. It's, it's in, in Greek terms, bios, rather than zoe. Zoe is talking about a transcendent life, the life of the divine life. In him was life and the life was the light of men. That's life. Yeah, exactly. Great. That's another term. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Doris. And then. Believe. Believe. What does it mean to believe? Good. Yeah, let's define that. Bryce. I was going to say believe. Believe. Okay. There's another one for believe. That's a very <laughs> It's also part. pointing to the fact that it's almost, it's pointing that they have to make a decision. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's their, now, is it true that we need to make a decision? <laughs> yeah. It's true we need to make a decision, right? Do we have a will? Yes. So we need to respond in our will. We need to make a decision. But you're talking about how this is all initiated by men. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, Christy, right you're right that that's an issue. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Being initiated by men, that's not good. Salvation is not initiated by men, it's initiated by God. Thank you. Um, Christy and then Leah, and then I got to move on. This kind of goes along with what Leanna was saying, um, but love. <clears throat> right. We, Mm -hmm. Wrong view. <laughs> totally different view in our culture of what love, exactly. or the church even, what love really looks like or what it really is. Yeah, good. Love. That's right. Love cries out, screams for definition, especially in such an erotically oriented culture. 
Yes. Um, both of the verses kind of assume that Christ is talking to the entire world, to all believers, without, okay. without the context and the way they're used in that presentation makes it sound like um, Christ is, is saying that um, salvation is for the entire world rather than for those predestined to adoption as such. Okay, good. So, so there's just there's no distinction between elect and non-elect. No, no, no emphasis at all on God's sovereign grace and His initiation and all that. There's none of that. That's right. I do want to say that I think John three sixteen is an excellent verse to to use in sharing the gospel. Just slow down. And start by defining all the terms. Give its context. Go to John 3, this conversation Nicodem or, uh, Jesus was having with Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel, but had no spiritual understanding. He needed to be born again. That's a great starting point. And then Jesus commands him to believe. It's great. Okay, so the article continues here. Here's quoting from the article. Why is it that most people are not experiencing the abundant life? Because, principle number two, all of us sin and our sin has separated us from God. So here's the verse, we are sinful. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? Um, that's what's keeping us from abundant life. And then it goes on to say this, we were created to have fellowship with God, but because of our stubborn self-will, we chose to go our own independent way and fellowship with God was broken. This self-will, characterized by an attitude of active rebellion or passive indifference, is evidence of what the Bible calls sin. What is missing from that explanation of sin and our problem before a holy God? Bruce. Okay, true. We haven't really gotten to the response. To be fair okay. to the article, we haven't really gotten to the response part, which you're going to get to, and I think you'll still say that. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but just with with its concept of sin, Mark. Uh, sin nature. It, it okay. doesn't bring out the fact that we were born into sin. Mm -hmm. We didn't reject God. We started off rejecting God. Yeah. Good. In it. Good. Uh, Gary. It's not that he's mad at us a little bit, but we deserve universal condemnation. Okay. Yeah. That sin has separated us in such a way, no one is good. No, not one. Okay. Good. And so absolute condemnation, universal condemnation. Wrath, I see that hand, I see that. Um, going over here, yeah, Christy? I thought I saw one over here. Um, I thought of another term, God. <laughs> God is another term that... God is another term that begs for definition, right? Yeah, um, and distinction and, and clarity. Sin, um, that the um, nature, like this is our heart, like the heart. It's right. It's talking about what you're doing or whatever, but not your heart condition. Okay, good. So it, there, there, it leaves a lot to be desired with actually defining. Now, what's interesting here is it says this self-will characterized by an attitude of active rebellion, and passive indifference is evidence of what the Bible calls sin. And you stop and think about it. They never actually define sin. Yeah. <laughs> Where, where's the definition? They've mentioned the word sin, which is good, commendable. You can find a lot of yeah. gospel presentations. Joel Osteen never mentioned sin. It's not good for people's self-esteem. To talk about sin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's just no mention of violence. There's just there's just no mention of what sin actually is. So it should, talks about evidence of what the Bible calls sin, but it never actually defines it. Is there, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say you were asking what was missing. I think 
maybe the standard, which is part of defining sin. Good. Yeah. Standard. What's the standard? By 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 what am I considered sinful or not sinful? You're gonna say something. Do they address you know, consequences of sin, or is the lack of a relationship? The consequence of your sin is broken fellowship with God and a missing out on abundant life. That's the consequence. What about the people who are obviously sinning that you know that are having it, what you would call abundant life because abundant wasn't described? Yeah, it's full and meaningful. I'm having a full and meaningful <coughs> life. It's what abundant. What about the rich person? What if I think abundant life is rich? And mm -hmm. you know that person, I know they're cheating on their spouse. And I know right. that they're evading taxes, but yet they didn't have a pretty abundant life. You're going to have to change your sales pitch for those people. <laughs> 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 yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Last comment. I need to move on. Pitch. It seems still to be very me-oriented. That yeah. I have some control over that. You know, I just need to make myself better and recognize the sin. That's right. This is still very me-oriented. We have control in this whole exchange, and it's all about us. That's that's exactly right. So the first thing, and I think this has already been identified, sin sin here in this whole thing is only understood in reference. Um, I mean, sin correctly uh, is only correctly understood in reference to the law of God. And this presentation doesn't mention God's law at all, through and through. Okay? It's interpreted, sin is interpreted and explained in a purely relational terms of broken fellowship. And that is true that we do break fellowship with God, but it's not foundational. Okay? The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. And by the way, the Westminster Shorter Catechism was created for teaching children. Teaching our little kids. We adults would do well to go through that and learn it. It asks the question, what is sin? Here's the answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's helpful. That is clear. That's what sin is. That's a good definition. It keeps the law of God in view. So it's the want of conformity to the law of God. That is a positive sense and or transgression of breaking the law of God. That's a very important definition. So we have to explain the gospel in terms of the guilt of original sin, that we are guilty of Adam's sin um, because we are in Adam. It was imputed to us. Romans five. We need to talk in terms of the guilt of our own sins, our own sins, which we we prove we're sinners by nature because we do sins. Actually, we, we don't have, I've never had to teach, I've mean, had five children, I've, I've consulted with a lot of parents, and I never had to teach any of them to sin. They just naturally knew how to do that. And I've never met a parent yet who said, you know, I really had a hard time teaching my child to sin. They were so rebellious against me, and, and so I had to sit them down and walk them through none of that. It's just natural to our nature, it's, it's part of our nature. So, we sin, we commit sin willingly because we have that nature. And you can read this on our, okay, good, um, on our website where the London Baptist Confession is posted, chapter 6. Here's what it says, a couple paragraphs here. Our first parents, by this sin, it's talking about that sin in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. That's talking about the doctrine of total depravity. They, the parents, 
Adam and Eve, being the root, and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and the corrupt nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature, children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual and temporal and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Try using that paragraph in your gospel presentation. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so from this, one more little sentence here. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to do all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. That's our nature. Born into this world, that is what we are like. You know how much that messes with the self-esteem of all the snowflakes in this world? <laughs> Little snowflake cupcake kids, you know? <laughs> Honor students and everything. They just, they're really bothered by that. <laughs> I hear a high school teacher laughing. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine saying that to your, cat, your class? Oh, yeah, I call them cupcakes. So, listen. <laughs> it's actually not my term. That's, uh, I, I, I borrowed that from somebody. I can't remember who now. <laughs> so this is by far uh, a more robust explanation of the sinner's predicament before God than that other gospel presentation, right? Sin is not just about relationship issues. Sin is corruption, and all are guilty of transgressing the law. They're under just condemnation. So let's get back to the article. Here's what the article says. We are separated, okay? And this whole thing about sin, we're separated. The wages of sin is death. And it puts in brackets there to explain what that is. It's spiritual separation from God. That's what death is. Spiritual separation from God. <laughs> then the article illustrates with a diagram. It depicts God on one side and people on the other. A great gulf, is article continuing, a great gulf separates us. The arrows illustrate that we are continually trying to reach God <coughs> and the abundant life through our own efforts, such as good life, philosophy, or religion, but we inevitably fail. Okay, that's from the article. So what's missing? in that explanation of death. What's wrong with that diagram, which you're not able to see, but I'm describing to you verbally. Uh, what's it, and you know, what's wrong with the diagram, what it's attempting to illustrate, okay? Let's start with just focusing on that explanation of death. What is wrong with that? No hell. Yeah. No hell? Okay. So death, biblically speaking, is the concept of separation. That is true. Physical death is the separation of our immaterial self from our material self. Um, spiritual death is our separation of us from God um, and being in a wrong relationship, uh, 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 in, uh, an enemy relationship with God. But what's eternal death? Eternal separation in hell. So when it says the wages of sin is death, and then it says spiritual separation from God. No. Um, I mean, that's true, but that's not really what that verse is talking about. That verse is talking about eternal separation from God. Not just spiritual separation, but eternal separation, which this article does not get into at all. So they're going to use 
John 3.16, um, so they you have eternal life, well, what's the, I mean, use that same verse. You know, what's the, the opposite? Eternal death. So you, you address that, you can use that verse to, to then address it. You, you could use that verse if, if you use it correctly, yeah, and really refer to what does it mean to perish? There are some who teach, evangelicals who teach, perish means snuffed out, annihilation. You just go to, a, to blackness and you no longer are. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. We're not Buddhists. Okay. No weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. That's true. That minimizes actually the holiness of God by minimizing the justice that's due to a, the sinner who commits sin against his holiness. That's the seriousness of the doctrine of eternal hell. Yeah, Lee. When you think about it, as you put it, these terms, we, if I'm God's enemy anyway, I'm not a believer and I'm separated from him just naturally, I really don't want God to be around in eternity either. So this isn't that unappealing. Yeah, that's right. There's a, an interesting way that C.S. Lewis puts uh, this issue of, the, of, of uh, God condemning sinners to hell. <clears throat> and basically what C.S. Lewis, I think, I think what he says is, is a good way to state it as long as you back it up with other things as well. But so here's what he says. He says, God has just been, when, when he sends people to hell, he's sending them to a place where he is not in his relational presence. And he's just giving sinners what they want. He's just giving them what their free will desires. That's true. That's true. It's harsh, isn't it? I've, I've also heard that described as that's how he's loving, too, because I don't know. I feel like that's wrong. Yeah, that's not but that's I not feel correct. like that yeah. usually goes with that. When I've heard it before, I feel like that usually goes with it. Like, he loves you so much that he doesn't want to violate your choice. And yeah. so he, separ- he removes you from his presence. Right. But I feel like the emphasis is on you then. Because totally. that's usually, I didn't actually realize C.S. Lewis said half of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I've only just heard it that way. And I was always like, that doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, for uh, philosophers can run into the danger of trying to overemphasize God never violating man's free will. Man, you know, the free will of man is such a huge, huge concept to philosophers, philosophy. So we need to be really careful of what we mean by free will. Are we making free decisions from our own choice and all that? Absolutely we are. But when before, you're, before you are regenerated, your, your sphere of choices, it's all sin. So you make you make choices, sure, free choices, but you can never choose anything that pleases God. True freedom is to, biblically speaking, freedom means the freedom to obey God, the freedom to worship Him, the freedom. It's it's liberty. It's an unrestrained. You know, we we tend to think of um, you know unrestrained uh, liberty, um, unrestricted liberty. Um, that that's freedom. You know, take away all restraint. That's freedom. No, true freedom, biblically speaking, is living within the constraints of God's law, according to his holy character. God is the most free being in the universe. And he gives us the gift of freedom, which is to be like him, conformed to his image. All right, so that's, <clears throat> yeah, Josh. Well, it wouldn't make, I mean, just the way they started out the presentation, it wouldn't make sense to go into hell because the foundation was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And so, mm-hmm. I, you, they already start with, you're already in a loving relationship with God, or he's, he's 
loves you already instead of yeah. John 3.18, which is they actually stand condemned before him already. So they're just heading down a road that they started with a right. bad foundational premise. That's right. You start with the wrong premise. And again, that's why I've, I've tried to emphasize over and over and over that the starting point for presenting the gospel has to be God and the fear of God. It has to be God is holy and we need to fear him and revere him. That's the starting point. That's where this whole thing begins. Because there is no wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. Um, and so, yeah, when you start off with the wrong premises they did, we're heading into, you know, troubled waters. Yeah. I feel like this article downplays how much, how horrible it would be to be separated from God, for one thing. And it also never mentions how heartbreaking it is for God for us to sin. It never mentions that. Yeah, I, you know, you're right. There, there's a lot in here that this article does not mention. And, and I think the, the terrible nature of true separation from God is they don't cover it. And it's, again, the format is trying to boil this down into the most presentable pitch that you can give somebody. So we can't get caught up into a whole lot of explanation. And when you, when you don't explain, you run the risk of imprecision. And imprecision, when you're dealing with life and death issues, eternal life and eternal death issues, is deadly. It's grave. That's very important. Yeah. So death is separation, but it's not just spiritual separation. We're already dead, if you think about it, spiritually. We're born spiritually separated from God. We're already born dead, okay? We're born that way. Romans, what Romans 6.23 is talking about is eternal death, eternal separation from God, which is the wages that our sins pay to us, okay? So when we're talking about the wages of sin is death, it's not spiritual, we're already born spiritually separated from God. This is talking about the wages sin pays is eternal separation from God, okay? So it's significant. There's no mention of hell in this article whatsoever. And this, folks, is ashamed of the gospel, this is, this is hiding the doctrine of hell. That's, this is the illustration of being ashamed of the gospel, okay? And this gospel presentation has softened considerably any sense of offense against God's holiness that's caused by our sin. It's taken the sting of God's anger out of the presentation. So it's hard to see God's displeasure with us in our sin, right? What do you think is motivating that? Not painting God in the, in the terms of being displeased with Sinners? Sales pitch. Sales pitch might offend them. Fear of man. Fear of man? Yeah, fear of man. We don't want them to react against us. Distorted sense of mercy. A distorted sense of mercy, yeah. Unpack that a little bit. What do you mean? Well, it's, um, you're trying to give them a presentation that throws God into such a positive light. And um, because you don't want to hurt their feelings, you don't want them to be hurt by what right. you're saying. So, so the way, what I kind of wrote down along with that is it just is, it's really trying very hard to make God nice. Yeah. To make him as approachable as possible, to make him not terrifying, as he really is terrifying, if you're on the wrong side of his wrath. And just to build on that, I think that's something we as Christians can easily do because we come to present the gospel in the first place out of a heart of compassion. You want to rescue this person. Mm. You care about people and you want to love them. 
so it's easy. So we're, Nicholas, if you didn't hear him back there, he's saying we're kind of set up for this because we're going to these people with the gospel out of a heart of compassion anyway. So we tend to want to soft sell some of those harder attributes of God. That doesn't serve God's purposes or their purposes well at all. Let me come to Maggie and then back here. I think we soft sell too because the standard was never in place to begin with. And so compared to someone else, we're doing very well. Yeah. I mean, when we set up our own moral structure, that guy's bad because he eats meat, you know? And, and, and it, it confuses everything to what I'm doing is okay because I've set my own standard. Right. And so it, it just, everybody's good because we've set our own. Once again, we've gotten off on the wrong foot because we never talked to, we never defined terms of true righteousness, God's absolute standard, his law, his truth. He, his holiness is the standard. And so compared to one another, we look pretty good. Yeah. I'm not like that meat eater over there. Yeah. Uh, coming to Lisa and Chrissy, then over here to Scott. Back to you. I think one of the other faults is humanizing God. Uh, I noticed just um, dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, you know, he asked me, because we were, you know, they don't believe in hell, and he asked me, you know, well, someone is doing whatever wrong for, and they don't even realize it, for this many years, you're going to send them to hell for eternity. Mm. So, you know, but I'm not God. I'm yeah, <laughs> that's really good. And so, and they don't believe in a triune God, because that doesn't make sense to them. So, we have to started out that we God doesn't think like us he doesn't act like us he created the world we didn't create the world um, what so an I mean, awesome point I yeah. think just starting out the and the more that we get to talk to him the more we understood where they were coming from right. but just setting the whole stage that we can't humanize God that he's gonna have the same kind of ways as we do Excellent. Excellent. If Gary Odie were here, he'd quote from Psalm 50, you thought that I was altogether like you. <laughs> he loves that verse, and he's absolutely right. And that's the, that's the same, if you go back to Genesis 3, you know who first tried to get man to think as if he was God, or as if she was God? Say, if you were God, would you do that? You can be like God, knowing good and evil, making judgments. They, you, you're absolutely right. You need to maintain that creator-creature distinction. He is not like us. I can imagine what I must do if God, if, if someone offends my holiness, because I'm not holy. God is. Great, great point. Um, I was just going to say that I think, and it's kind of along the lines of that, that the, given who God is, our love, love for God should be preeminent over love for man. I mean, yeah. we should love God and hate sin and hate, you know, we ha have a heart for God, how they're, like um, Natalie said, they're breaking his heart, you know, they, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so whose side are you gonna be on when they are hostile or they choose mm -hmm. to turn their back or they, you know, right. anyway, love for God is preeminent, <clears throat> Supreme over yeah, supreme over over our love for other yeah. our love for people. But really, if we truly love people, we don't have to make that distinction, because we're going to love God and demonstrate Him for who He really is, because we love people, not in spite of loving people. Okay, so we don't need to make put the, set those at odds with each other. 
Um, it's kind of like Lee was saying, Nicholas was saying, we tend to, to approach people with a misplaced sense of mercy and compassion. And really we do, you're right, we need to sympathize with God and his concerns first and foremost. And in doing that, in presenting God for who he really is, we are loving people. Okay, I'll come back to you. I, I need to go over here, Scott. So I was just going to, this kind of builds off what then Brett. they were saying, but uh, where the fact that he's trying to make God more kind or whatever, mm -hmm. um, he, he's trying to be God in a, in a way because he's saying he, like whenever we want to evangelize, we want to keep the person because we want to, we want to make sure that he gets saved. Good, good. So, we're trying to we're trying to be God in, in a sense to make it more that so that He stays with you. Yeah, so so there's a, yeah just to even um, jump on that point a little bit more is to say that we're trying to be like God the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. We want to be the Holy Spirit who woos that person in and keeps them in and and actually does the per persuading work in their life. Yeah. Yeah. That, that no. Let's we've we've said this from the very beginning leave the Spirit's work to the Spirit. We just need to be faithful in proclaiming the truth. Okay, good. Um, it was you, Brett, and then your dear mother. Yeah, I was just saying, I was just gonna say that the soft cell thing, you know, is just not, it's kind of outdated now, mm -hmm. and tolerance has really trumped it, because the minute you start, you know, you've already got pared down Jesus to nothing, and God to nothing, and his wrath is non-existent and stuff like that. So really, you're just trying to sell this relationship thing, you yeah. know? And they, they just always come back with, well, I mean, why, why, does, why, why does all these other sincere people that are trying as hard as they can, why do they not have a relationship? Yeah. And then you're back on your heels, and you basically have to say, well, like, they probably do. Tolerance has kind of done that because it kind of has, has hostile, it? tolerant people tend to be like well, hostile, tolerant. tolerant. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great phrase. That's exactly right. Um, that is a thing. Hostile tolerance. Yeah, the um, and, and that is true when you when you are trying to soft pedal all of this. Um, uh, man, there was a comment that I just, anyway, your, your comment stands on its own. I won't even elaborate. Sure. When Nick said that about we're reaching out to people with a heart of compassion, I suddenly had this memory of um, water safety. What is it called when you're learning to be a lifeguard? Yeah. Yeah, WSI. And in WSI, um, I was in high school, and... Uh, they said, you know, this person is going to get combative, and the more panicking they panicky they are, the more they're going to try to drown you. Yeah. And they said, so their their advice was, you knock them out. And here I was, <laughs> 95 pounds. You know? And my guy with me in the test was like 200 pounds. Yeah. And um, I thought, you know, it really is. It is true, though, that the compassionate thing to do. Yeah. is knock that person out so you can actually save them. And in this situation, what Nick said with compassion, you are trying to save this person's soul. I know you're not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I know you're not God. But you're attempting to share him with yeah. them. Sure. And so, um, but, but by 
um, putting on velvet gloves all the time, you're not helping them yeah. at all. And yet that's always what I tried to do in mm. evangelism as well as Sure. Water safety. As well as water safety. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, the struggling swimmer drowned both of you. <laughs> that's right. That's a great. That's a great analogy. Um, but just for the for the audio, we want to make sure we don't knock anybody out. You can take hands here. The gospel. It's a metaphor. As you were talking, I had so many different thoughts go through my head, and, and God is His restraining grace <laughs> that I'm not saying God, because I have just so many funny things. <laughs> but it's not appropriate. And my wife is helping me to see those things. And I should be thankful to my wife. All right. All right. So I, let's. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll just get into trouble. It'll come out. I'm doing okay. Okay, so let's continue. We just have a little bit of time left. Let's continue the other two points in this very popular gospel presentation. The article says, the third law explains the only way to bridge this, this gulf. Um, and that, remember the diagram I described? And, and man's always trying to reach up. And, and, and the, the, the false thing about that diagram is man is not continuing to try to reach up. <laughs> it says there is no one who seeks for God, not even one. That's what Romans 3 says. And it's supported all through scripture. Um, any attempt to, to be a seeker is actually seeking an idol. Okay? It's God who seeks us. That's the true seeker gospel. God seeks us, not we seek God. Okay? All right, so... So they still want to go on and give a third point, a third principle that's going to help bridge this gulf. Principle number three, <clears throat> Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Through him, we can know and experience God's love and plan for our life. Number one, he died in our place. God, um, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He rose from the dead. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500. And then he is the only way to God. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, just to speed things along, I'll chime in here. I can, I can take exception with some of the theology and the way this is kind of presented here. But my main concern for our purposes isn't with what's said, but more with what is not said. Okay? This presentation has failed to make clear from the beginning our need, from, our need for salvation, the fact that our need for salvation is to be rescued from God. He is the danger. He is the one we face that is dangerous, and we need to be rescued from God by God. That's the gospel. So this presentation also lacks seriously in its explanation and its interpretation to convey the significance of those scripture references that it cites. Um, the unbeliever is left to interpret all those scriptures in isolation from Christian theology. So that's really, really important after a, a robust explanation for our grave condition before a holy God. What in this produces a sense of the fear of the Lord? What in this produces a sense of, of a holy reverence, of a dread of impending judgment? Nothing. There's nothing that does that. 
In fact, if I'm feeling pretty fulfilled in my relationships, if I'm feeling pretty content in the wonderful plan that I have for my life, what compels me to listen to any of this? Mm. It's kind of like back to Brett's point, you know, what, why should I listen to this? It's a, apart from any sense of appending judgment, any sense of facing the full fury of God's wrath, why should I care what those verses say about God's provision for my sin in Christ? If I like my sin, if I don't see my sin as sin, if I see my sin as just my pursuit of what I want to get, you know? So this gospel presentation brings it all home with an attempt to seal the deal here by saying, it's not enough just to know these three principles, there must be a response. Okay, good. Must be a response. Principle number four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Okay, so it mentions Lordship of Christ, but no real explanation or unpacking what that means or what it is or what it demands. We must receive Christ, is the verse. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Again, divorce from context, um, divorce from any understanding of regeneration, preceding, receiving Christ. True, uh, as it stands, but it's just not enough. We receive Christ through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's the, selves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So, that's also true. Um, it's a mark of Protestant theology with two in that section, two of the solas of the Reformation, sola gratia, sola fide. But again, it's divorced from the spirit of Protestant theology. Here's a, a third thing it says, that when we receive Christ, we experience a new birth. Then it moves on to a fourth thing. We receive Christ by personal invitation. And uh, then it gives another verse. It's interesting. In the, in the four um, headings that it gives there and then gives verses, this one here, when we receive Christ, we experience a new birth. No verses. No verses after that. Why is that? Because you cannot prove that theology from the Bible. That when we receive Christ, we are then born again. Because this contradicts a Protestant ordo salutis, an order of salvation, which is the tradition of Protestant soteriology. Regeneration, or the new birth, does not follow faith. Regeneration precedes faith. It starts with God's initiating grace to regenerate the dead sinner. Then that regenerated sinner puts faith in Christ. So you do not believe, and then you experience a new birth according to what this says. And that's why there are no verses here, because you cannot prove this from the Bible. So then it comes down to, we receive Christ by personal invitation. And then again in brackets, it says, Christ speaking here, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. <laughs> Here's some laughing. Why are you laughing? There's some groans, not laughter. What's that? Josh did a good job. What's that? Because Josh did a good job. <laughs> Josh did a good job? Yeah, that was... Oh, what do you say? Well, that was Christ standing outside the door of the church of Laodicea. Good. Okay, so that's not a, that's not a personal invitation. It's not a personal invitation. Let me into your heart, please. Please let me into your heart. <laughs> that's like word for word what you're taught in Sunday school. That's yeah, like I you mean, have I to ask God into your heart. That's what I heard. When I was seven, I got baptized, thought I was good. Okay. I was not. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that's just, 
enough. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're all taught this in Sunday school. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's a little picture with a, with a heart and with a door on the heart, and Jesus is standing there and knocking. Knock. Like the ethereal light coming out of it. Jesse, my hyper literal child, said, Yeah, that's not even what a heart looks like. <laughs> language or even the concept of this personal invitation is what we're doing in proclaiming the gospel is it inviting sinners or is it something else what are we doing here when we are bringing the gospel to people okay teaching pleading with pleading yeah that's appropriate what are we pleading with them to do though? calling them to repentance repent the gospel is not a suggestion, it's a command. It's not an invitation, it's a demand for repentance. And it's not us doing the demanding, it's God doing the demanding. Repent and believe. These are imperatives in the Greek, they're commands. And so we are again trying to soften this by, hey, I'd like to invite you to consider Jesus. Now that's not what the Bible says. It's not invite you to consider Jesus. It's Bow on your knees before him and profess him as your Lord. That's what we're at. you love the darkness and you hate the light. Yeah. I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to this, and, and frankly, I'm kind of I'm just really sad because I live so much of my life in that world, and I'm just heartbroken just hearing this. And I, you know, what I want to say to it is, and, and I open myself up for correction from you about this, but I'm thinking about Jesus talking to Nicodemus and telling him this. Hmm. And it's completely ludicrous. Every aspect of it is totally and completely against what Jesus tells Nicodemus. It's ludicrous. Yeah. It's not just so-so. Yeah. It's not just barely missing it. It's completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. What do I? How do I respond to that? I mean, how do I? How should I feel about that, Travis? I feel really sad right now. Just listening to what is a proclamation of the gospel by a very widely used contemporary organization and I'm heartbroken over it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad that you're heartbroken. Not not because it makes me happen to see you grieve and be sorrow sorrowful over it, but it's the right response, I think. Because God's holiness is at stake, the truth of the gospel is at stake. And really as I'm looking at the clock I gotta wrap up here, but as I as you think about this, you know this, these are eternal issues. And when you proclaim the gospel that this presentation wants us to proclaim, you know what we do? We just inoculate people and we make them think that they're fine when they're not. And, and then they show up in our churches. And then you try to teach them. And then you try to say, hey, you know, the gospel actually demands change. And the gospel, you know, giving up your life and sacrifice. And instead of prayer. They, oh, I said, who are you to judge me? You know, I mean, you've, you've completely like, what are you doing? Back, backdooring all the demands. Who would do, is this in the fine print? I didn't sign up for this. They feel offended. And I understand why they feel offended. Because somebody who put this gospel thing together, they just wanted to try to soft sell 
And then once they get into the church, that's when they find out, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean there's more? That's kind of what Mormons do. Well, that might have been the plan initially, but what it actually did was create whole churches like that. So when they do go into right. the church, they don't hear anything different. That's true. That's true. They find churches that are just like themselves. That's right. And it's not even like you, you don't necessarily immediately recognize it. I grew up in the church. I thought I was good. I got baptized. I thought that you, you do the good deeds and you follow the right lines. And as soon as I came up against a challenge that was life defining, I buckled. Yeah. Because I didn't ever believe. I just thought right. I just do good. And that's what I was told that that was fine. Yeah. Yeah. So when you when you come and the, the tests of life and the trials of life hit you, you in your words, you buckle, you buckle and you cave. But then you're totally assured in churches that you're doing just fine. You're OK. And so then what do you do? You continue on completely saturated by sin, overcome by sin, immersed in sin. You're, you're tormented, you're troubled, you're, and, and you're always going to, you know, when you go to the Bible, it just makes you feel more guilty. You can't, you can't ever get freedom from that. Anyway, we're past time, and I really do have to wrap up. So we'll try, we'll try to introduce it next time when we come back together and, um, with, with some of this. But we'll get into the theology and really start to talk, talk some nuts and bolts about what is the theology of the gospel. And, uh, you know, I won't get too heady as we go through. I'll just try to break it down really simply. But we, would, we do want to walk down, walk down the theo theological road and talk about these doctrines, okay? So let's, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for uh, helping us to get some clarity about the gospel, uh, not only by, you know, kind of talking about what it is, but also what it isn't. Uh, it was really helpful to get a bit of a contrast here. Well, we are sad and, and grieved um, about what so many of us have grown up with, thinking that this is the gospel. And, and now that we're getting clarity about it, it does make us sad. But at the same time, we, uh, we want to rejoice. We want to turn around and rejoice that you're helping us to understand the truth. So please, um, please help us in our efforts to be faithful to you to be faithful to your word and help us to work out um, just repenting and turning away from what we've, what we've come out of, what we've emerged from, and help us to find an accurate understanding of the truth through your word. We're grateful for how you've helped us with that tonight and just ask that you would continue to strengthen us as we learn the theology next time. Pray that uh, everyone would have a great week, Father, that you'd be... Um, and just reminding them of things that they've learned throughout the week and cause them to rejoice, cause them to speak clearly, to live in a way that glorifies you, and to have gospel conversations wherever you open those kinds of doors. Help us to look for open doors. Help us to speak with people who are lost and dying and need to have an understanding of the truth. Uh, thank you so much for leaving us here to proclaim the gospel and to bring glory to you by proclaiming your holiness and your saving grace accurately to them. In Jesus' name, amen.